Dr. Melissa Jenkins Mangili is a neuropsychologist and medical school faculty member who has reinvented herself as a fashion and fitness model. Welcome to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast, where I discover stories of people finding their fertile ground through sheer grit and resilience. I'm your host, Marie Gettle-Gilmartin, and this podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. I help professional services firms avoid boring and boost employee engagement, productivity, and readership. I translate technical, complex, and lackluster language into accessible, dynamic, story-driven text. I alternate this podcast with my other podcast, Companies That Care, which is about business leaders making a difference in the world. Check out www.fertilegroundcommunications.com for more details. Melissa's life began with grit and resilience. She and her three siblings were raised in poverty in rural Maine by a single quadriplegic mother. Let's hear her story. Hello, Melissa. Thank you so much for joining the Finding Fertile Ground podcast today. Thanks for having me. I read about your story in advance of our interview, and it seems like you've been through a ton of things in your life, so I can't wait to hear your story. Let's start with the very beginning. Can you share with our listeners about your childhood? Well, I had a very unique childhood. I grew up in rural Maine in a town called Gardner, and my family circumstances were changed abruptly when my mother was involved in a snowmobiling accident. She was severely injured and was paralyzed from the chest down. She was 29 years old at the time and had three children and one on the way. Oh my so, gosh, one on the way. And how old were you when that happened? So I was four years old. My mom was hospitalized for about a year and then came back to us in a wheelchair with a new baby. And we were living in a tiny two bedroom house. You know, my parents were young and were just starting out. And at that point, my father left a house full of small children, a disabled mom in a small town in rural Maine. And, you know, we really had to figure it out from there. The nice thing about being from a small town is that everybody knows each other and everybody knew our situation and rallied to help us. Had a lot of support in the early years with, first of all, building a ramp on our house and helping to provide basic necessities until we could get our feet on the ground and figure out what to do. Oh, I can't even imagine. So you had four children. How did she take care of all of you? I think with a lot of help from our community, people really helped out as far as bringing food and helping to get her to appointments. She couldn't drive at first. She had to relearn how to drive and to get an adapted car. And eventually we were able to build a wheelchair accessible home, you know, on the ground level that she could get in and out of independently. And she was able to drive independently, even though she needed a little help getting in and out of the car. She became much more independent as she was able to adapt to her injury. As we got older, we were able to help more and more, both with her physical care and also with earning money. So part of my story is that I started working really, really early. When I was nine years old, I had a paper route and would get up at five in the morning and deliver the newspapers all around the streets. I started babysitting one summer. I turned 12 that summer and babysat 50 hours a week for another family with a single mom who had to work all day and her children were a bit younger than me. So I took care of three children and cleaned her house and cooked her meals when I was 12 years old. I earned a dollar an hour. 
<laughs> wow. Was your mother able to get a job? No, she was not able to work. And honestly, I think it was more the lack of having the Americans with Disabilities Act. You need a certain minimum kind of accommodations when you use a wheelchair. You need an elevator. You need an accessible bathroom. You need a few things. So, you know, even though cognitively she was fine and her injuries were just physical, it was very difficult for her to work. She tried a few times and failed just because she couldn't get into the building or into the bathroom. She must have had incredible strength and resilience to do what she did. Boy. She did. And when I think back about how I've been able to make different adjustments in my life, I always think about her and how huge an adjustment she had to make and the sacrifices that she made to live really focused on taking care of her children. I don't think anybody plans for something that like that to happen to them at age 29. Mm. The various things that I've been through really seem relatively minor. So I'm assuming you grew up in a lot of poverty then too. Yeah. In those days, there was a surplus food program. So each week we would get a box of food and eventually that turned into the voucher system that they have now, a food stamp program where instead of actual food, you would get vouchers and you could go to the grocery store and buy food. Our reality was just living with the bare minimum. We would always have food, but at the end of the month, we would run out and there would be things like rice and raisins for dinner or bread pudding made from powdered milk or whatever we had left over at the end of the month. It was something that weighs on you all the time when you don't quite have enough. You're always afraid to eat a little more or to buy a little something. I think you always worry about it. Right. Always worrying that you're not going to have your next meal. Yeah. Did they have the free lunch program back then? Not when I was young. At some point in my childhood, I think about middle school that came about. That was definitely helpful for us to not have to bring a lunch to school. Do you have particular happy memories of your childhood that stick out? Oh, there were so many things. In fact, I think if you ask any of my brothers and sisters, we will all say that The experience made us closer and it really made us happier in a lot of ways because even though things were tough, we were in it together. We all had a common mission of taking care of our mom and taking care of each other and doing everything that we could to contribute to that common mission. So even though it sounds difficult and at times it was, we also had a benefit in that we were all in it together and we became very close and we learned how to be very self-sufficient and We're all very successful as adults, I would say. My family upbringing was nothing like yours, but we didn't have a lot of money. I didn't take my first airplane trip till I was 20. My dad was a teacher and they both had graduate school loans and things like that. So he would pick up summer jobs. I would say we were probably lower middle class, but I'm really glad I was brought up that way. You know, skipping and saving a little bit because it makes me appreciate what I have now. I think it does give you a different appreciation for things that you have. When I went to college, I went to a private college where most of the students were not paying for their own education. So I didn't fit in there at all. I had come from a public school. They were coming from prep schools. I really had a lot of holes in my educational background compared to them. I had a tutor for every subject my first year. And I was working both on campus and off campus to try to put myself through school. So it was really a struggle at first and always the feeling of not fitting in. But I don't know that I would trade looking back 
to have so much done for you. For as much as I struggled, I really learned how to do everything myself. Exactly. Let's talk a little bit about your schooling, because right now you are a neuropsychologist. You're highly successful in your field. You're an educator. You taught at medical schools. Tell us how you got to that point in your life, because that's quite a jump given your childhood. It was really not a given to me growing up that I would even be able to go to college because my family could not afford it. And I really had to work a lot. Even going through high school, I set up my schedule so I would be done in time to get to the three o'clock shift at McDonald's. So I would work three to 11 during the school year to try to make money. And I knew if I did get to college, I would be paying for it myself. So I really tried to save as much as I could, but that meant not taking some of the college prep classes too. I had to make a trade-off. So it wasn't clear to me that I would be able to go to college. When I got into Colby, I was very surprised, excited, but also not knowing if I could pay for the second year even if I made it through the first year, it was always year by year, day by day, week by week, hoping that I would get to the end and not really knowing that. I got a work-study job on campus. I got some financial aid, but I still had to work a lot. And I also got jobs off campus, either waitressing. I worked in the Boys and Girls Club, just any little job that I could fit into my schedule. Some weekends, I would hitchhike home and work at McDonald's and pick up extra shifts there to try to make ends meet. and. Somehow, miraculously, it all added up to enough. And I did get through Colby. I did well in my classes. I studied hard. I got scholarships for doing well. And I ended up graduating second in my class. Fantastic. Congratulations. Thanks. Yeah, that was, I guess, a big surprise to me. When did you know that you wanted to go to medical school? It's hard to say. You know, somewhere along the line, I heard about the educational system in California. And I think that really started me thinking that education was more publicly accessible there. And if I could get myself to California and become a resident, maybe I could afford to go on in school. I always knew that I wanted to be a psychologist. I think it was more of a calling than a choice. I was always the one in my friends group that people would come to when they had a problem. One of my friends when I was a teenager was suicidal and he called me and had a gun in his hand and told me goodbye thank you for being a good friend. And I was able to keep him on the phone and to get authorities to him so that he could get help. So I think I started working as a psychologist long before I became one. I think I would have found a way to pursue that somehow. But hearing about the possibility of education that was affordable in California motivated me to get there and find work. And it's not an easy trip to start in Maine <laughs> when you have no money. But when I graduated from Colby and not seeing anything on the horizon that looked better for me, certainly not in Maine, I said, let's just go for it. So I got into a Dodge Colt that had 200,000 miles on it with a tent in the back, camped my way across the country. And when I got to San Diego, I found a, a campground where I could live for a couple of weeks while I figured out how I could live and get myself to work. And somehow I got an apartment and got a job and got another job and set myself up to work for a year and get into grad school. Wow. You said that you didn't get in the first year, so you had to keep going? That's true. I applied to schools my first year and not realizing the importance of standardized tests, my educational background came back to haunt me when I took the math GRE. I had been a psychology major in college and I did okay on the GRE, but 
competitive grad schools wanted a much higher score. So I was actually rejected my first year of applying to grad schools after I had gotten there and set myself up. So I had to stop and retake the test in order to get into the programs that I wanted to go to. I spent my days off, my holidays when I couldn't see my family. I stayed at home and I studied for the GRE. Wow. Were you able to build community around you in California to support you or were you pretty much on your own? I was on my own. I found roommates and work in various fields. One of the things that I found was modeling. And so I was able to work with an agency and get some modeling jobs, which paid fairly well. I was able to save some money. I was able to get a better car that would last through my graduate program and to find places that were decent to rent where I could be in a safe area and set myself up for grad school. So even though it took two years, it did help to have a little more cash on hand and be a little more settled when I started school. So you also mentioned that your parents continued to need care for a little while. Tell us a little bit more about that and your dad coming back into your life. That was a very unexpected development. My father had really been absent for most of my childhood. But surprisingly, when I was at Colby up in northern Maine, one of my dorm mates had gone skiing and he came back to the dorm and he said, oh, I ran into your father today. You gotta be kidding. What father? And he said, yeah, he pulled me out of a snowbank. I spun off the road. And unbeknownst to me, he had actually returned to Maine and set up a business and was running a service station up in northern Maine. So eventually he did make contact with me and we reconnected. And he came to my college graduation along with a new wife and two new babies. So I had half sisters that I hadn't met and a new stepmother. And then we had to make a decision because he had been a fairly deplorable dad. And leave a wife who was so injured and not care for his children and to suddenly return, I think we all had to make that decision for ourselves of whether we wanted to let him back into our lives. Now that we're grown up and we don't need any care, sure, he wants to come back. But at the same time, he had other children. So for me, it was a pretty immediate yes, and I did reconnect with him. It took my brothers and sisters a bit longer to get to yes, but they all eventually did. Did he ever apologize or explain himself or anything? Not in so many words. He did try a lot harder. Tragically, his new wife, who was much younger than he was, died of breast cancer when my sisters were only 10 and 11 years old. Mm. So he was left as their only parent. And I was very glad at that point that I had reconnected with him because now they had another family member to connect with in the absence of their mom. It sounds like you really became a, a big sister to them and filled that well, gap a little bit. For me too, because my mom did continue to need care throughout her life, most of which was provided by my older sister, who is a saint. She was able to stay there to marry, to start a family of her own there. And she took on the bulk of my mother's care, which honestly was saintly. She did need a lot of physical care and support and comfort from the people around her. And my sister was so able to provide that. Wonderful. She became a nurse and used the skills that she picked up taking care of my mom to take care of everybody. She still takes care of our whole family that way. Nice. What's your sister's name? Her name is Melanie. Shout out to Melanie. She also saved her daughter who unfortunately developed childhood cancer and went through such a long road of treatment and recovery. But she had the skill to take care of my niece. She survived that cancer episode alive and well and thriving as a young wow. woman. It's all because of the caring of my sister. 
Now, you mentioned in the form that you filled out that some people say to you that you're lucky. Why do they say that to you? Some people say to me now, because I live where I live, or I worked at Brown University for many years, and people look at me now and think, maybe my life has been easy, that I live in a beach town. I can walk from my house. I am lucky. But it wasn't really luck that got me here. I had a lot of bad luck to start off with. Yes, yes. I had to work really, really hard to overcome that bad luck. So it's always a bit of a shock when people look at me and say, oh, you're so lucky. Oh my <laughs> God. Working three jobs at a time kind of luck. You know? <laughs> yes. Let's talk a little bit about how your life has changed more recently. You worked as a neuropsychologist for how many years? For 25 and change. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what happened recently in your career change? Well, COVID interrupted everybody's career. But for me, I decided I didn't want to go back to my previous life. So I had evolved in my neuropsychology career. I started as a research-focused neuropsychologist in academic medical center at Brown. When I came to Brown as a postdoctoral fellow, we created a job for me to stay on as a faculty member working in the state hospital system and also at a couple of the teaching hospitals and providing education to other upcoming interns and residents going through their training. But then there wasn't any research funding and I did more clinical work. When hospitals weren't making money on clinical work, I got pushed out into private practice, which I liked surprisingly well. I loved seeing patients and I absolutely loved working for myself. Never would have expected that, but the circumstances pushed me in that direction. I was able to do that for a number of years. Then I migrated into a consulting practice where I would do consulting to lawyers, pharmaceutical research companies, needing technical writing, case reviews, or forensic neuropsychology services. And that's what I was doing up until COVID hit. I was taking in as much work as I could, still trying to make money and get ahead, build the nest egg and all that. And then COVID hit and suddenly I had no work. Ports were closed. Everybody's business was dried up. There were no studies other than the COVID related ones. And suddenly nobody needed me. And I was like, whoa, I figured first and foremost in a pandemic, you take care of your health. So I got into a workout group and my friends in the group were joining a fitness contest that consisted of just putting some photos of yourself online after your workouts. And I did that. And some people started seeing them and said, hey, you should model. I'm a photographer. Can I take your picture? Or I have a boutique. Can you model for me in my clothes? A lot of businesses were putting their inventories online so people didn't have to come into the store. So I worked with a lot of companies like that, creating catalogs and ads for local photographers and did a few fashion shows. It really took off more quickly than I would have expected. I was able to find an agent and have been pretty consistently employed as a fashion model for the last couple of years. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> it's not what you expect to be doing in your 50s, for no. sure. <laughs> no, most people are, yeah, are not thinking that way, that's for sure. And I mean, a lot of women in their 50s are not particularly happy with their bodies. So it seems kind of radical to do something like this at your age. <laughs> Yeah, but that's what actually makes me more interested in doing it. When I hear my Gen X friends saying, I don't see myself in ads, I don't feel good about my appearance, or I think I should get Botox, or I should get surgery, or I should get facials every other week, or I have to go to the gym three hours a day to look even decent. 
I think it is radical to step in front of a camera and do it as yourself, not with artificial enhancements or extreme workout regimens or any of that kind of perfectionism, but just to step in front of the camera or out on a runway and model as a not 25-year-old model and be visible and represent our generation. I did hear a lot of people say when I started, even when I auditioned for some agencies or some shows, they would say, you're too old for runway. I don't see you in fashion. And I would say, but my friends wear these fashions. We go to galas. We go to charity events. We dress well. In fact, we have more money to buy these fashions than the 20-year-olds you've been using to model So it's actually much more fitting to use a 50-year-old model than a 25-year-old one, don't you think? Yes, I love (laughs) it. You're basically redefining beauty. Well, I hope so. I think people have a skewed image of what fashion is about. Fashion is really about expressing yourself. And as we get older and we know ourselves better, I think we're much more able to do that in fashion. We're not wearing trends. We're not wearing what anybody else tells us we should wear. We're wearing things that express ourselves. And there's a real beauty in that that is not captured in the youthful kind of fashion industry. Totally. Have you heard of the company called Smart Glamour? No. It's basically a one-woman brand in New York City. It's a size-inclusive and every other type of inclusive fashion brand. And she actually uses real life people for her models. I don't think that there's pay involved, whereas you're actually getting paid for your modeling, I'm assuming. But when I interviewed her for my other podcast, Companies That Care, and I asked her about older models, and she has not had a lot of people apply to be older models. She's more likely to have a wide variety of sizes and colors, but I feel like that's a real area that needs to be improved. Yes, definitely. And I've seen a few older models, and they really do define themselves exclusively by their age. One thing I decided very early on was that I was not going to mention my age in modeling. I see a lot of people who label themselves kind of fit over 40 or 50 and fabulous or sexy and 60. But I don't think you need to define yourself by your age, just as I don't think you need to define yourself if you happen to be more than 120 pounds. You don't need to call yourself a curve model Uh or a plus size model. Your size is visible. You're a model. Uh Right. Exactly. Wow. What is it like to go on these runways and have everybody looking at you? How does that feel? You know, it's a bit unnerving at first, but so is teaching. So is presenting at scientific conferences. So is everything that you do for the first few times. I think I've done a lot of things that frightened me at first. Do you feel like you've gotten more used to it? It's much more natural to you now than when you first started? Yes, I've gotten more comfortable with the idea that I don't need to model like everybody else. I have a certain style that is my own, and it may not look like a 20-year-old on the runway, but then again, neither do I. People tell me that I have an elegant look and that I look very classy when I wear their clothing. So I think it's conveying what I feel about myself and transferring that to the clothes. That's awesome. I've never met anybody who became a model in their 50s. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Just me. (laughs) Just you. Well, especially to have a PhD and to have this professional career, then completely take a left turn. And do you miss your psychology job at all? 
Honestly, no. I feel like I did a good job at that career. I published in international journals and worked at one of the best medical schools in the country for more than a quarter of a century. I helped a lot of patients along the way. You know, it was a great first career. Let's see how the second one goes. Your life is an example of how you're never too old to try something new, you know? Oh, definitely not. Even though I did a little modeling in my 20s, it wasn't an interesting career path for me because it was a normal and expected thing to do. I didn't really feel like there was anything unique or special that I brought to the table. Now I think I have something a little unique and unusual to bring to the table at this point, whereas I was kind of a run-of-the-mill model at 20. (laughs) Right. You also said in your form that when you were working as a neuropsychologist, you had to fit into a particular mold and you couldn't express yourself very freely. Can you talk a little bit about that? That's true. There was always a certain amount of pressure in the academic and clinical environment to be very conservative and to maintain a certain image. So for example, when I went on vacation, I wouldn't even post a photo with a drink in my hand or a swimsuit on or anything that really didn't fit that image. I would be fairly quiet about my political views. I would try not to make waves of any sort. Because if you did, you would certainly receive negative repercussions for that. That started easing up a bit when I went to work for myself, because at that point I couldn't be fired. So I began to be much more politically outspoken and maybe the occasional vacation photo, but not as much as I am now. Now, I think my academic colleagues would be a bit surprised to see my modeling photos. Yeah. Are you still in touch with many of them? Have you gotten reactions? I don't think they've quite discovered what I'm doing yet, but (laughs) hopefully they will. (laughs) Interesting. I was in the corporate environment for nearly 30 years, and then I started my own business in 2019. And I feel the same way. I feel so much more free with my opinions, and I can live out my values more clearly now that I work for myself. So I can really relate to that. I think it's a privilege that I failed to appreciate for most of my life be yourself and to be outspoken about who you are. And I do think young people now are unwilling to hide who they are and unwilling to follow the dictates of their environment. I see a lot of young people kind of shaking it up and radically being themselves and confronting the environments that are more confining. Honestly, I'm inspired by that. I wish I had had the courage to do it earlier. Yeah, me too. I agree. Yeah, I've got a 19-year-old and he's you know, college students. So he has lots of opinions. He's not shy to share. (laughs) Really, that's how it should be. You know, it shouldn't be a privilege. It should be something that we all do. We just need to be more accepting of differences and tolerant of diversity, because as much as the university system preaches diversity, they don't live it. And it's not surprising that people raised in different cultures don't seek out that kind of environment for themselves because it's really not fully accepting of diversity. You experienced this yourself. To get into university is so hard if you don't have more of a privileged upbringing. So you're naturally going to get people in universities who look more alike, and most of them have come from more privileged backgrounds, I think. So that's a kind of diversity we don't always see. Yes, it's definitely a sacrifice to the whole family to have one member of the family not earning a lot of money for as many years as it takes to get a doctorate. Seven years, all told, with the 
working to get in. Yes. In the form you filled out, I asked about how you found fertile ground in your life. And you were talking about always finding a way to have fun. Can you talk a little bit about how you've done that in your life? Yeah. So even when we were dirt poor and living in rural Maine, my mom would always find a way to make what we were doing fun. We might get up at three in the morning and go to Dunkin' Donuts just to have an adventure and a donut. That's a tiny little outing, but it was unique and fun and spontaneous and just unusual enough that we would have good memories around it. Or we would have a theme dinner. We might have a special holiday event that was unusual. Maybe we'd have a beach party one Christmas or a pizza party. Not so that being non-traditional wasn't bad. It was actually a bonus. We would drive to the ocean and go to a state park and just spend the day together as a family with a little picnic at, at a state park. And that cost virtually nothing and was a wonderful family time. So I didn't grow up in Maine going skiing or eating lobster, but there were a lot of fun things that we did as a family that we all have fond memories of now. Nice. It must have really been inspired by your mom to be able to create those, those types of experiences for you. Yeah, she was a very creative person and a very intelligent person to surround herself with art. She used to go to lawn sales and buy framed prints for 50 cents or whatever to put in the house because she loved art. That's great. And then I love the idea that you developed a theme song for every vacation. Where did that come from? Well, I think that's her spirit coming through. When I would take my sisters for Sister Week, we would always come up with a theme song for our trip. So we would sing it on the bus or the train or the plane or however, the car, wherever we were traveling. We'd have our theme song and that would just be part of our adventure. Love it. I love it. That's awesome. Yeah, I think that finding small pleasures and fun along the way as you're dealing with a lot of obstacles, that's really an inspiring way to get through these types of difficult times. Really, as an adult, I've embraced the idea that it's never too late to have a happy childhood. So if there's an adventure that comes up that I can enjoy, even if it seems out of line with my current age, you know, I'll jump on the carousel or carnival ride or roll down the hill or jump on a sled or whatever it is. If I didn't get to do that earlier in life, why not do it now? Yeah, awesome. Have you ever taken the Enneagram? I may have in a work environment. Oh, right. I'm just wondering because the way you describe your life, it sounds like you're seven on the Enneagram, but I don't want to predict you. <laughs> but sevens tend to look for opportunities to have fun. Yes. Kind of drives them. And I'm a seven. So I kind of recognize that in you, perhaps. I have to tell you, I'm really bad at planning ahead. Uh -huh. So that's also because I don't expect things to go as planned. And when something pops up at the last minute, I'm the first one to jump in on it because I really didn't have plans. That does fit in with being a seven too, that you're yeah. always the first one to jump into a spontaneous activity. Yeah. I'll crash anyone's party or vacation. Yes. So what do you wish people understood about you? I do political activism and I ask politicians to do something or change something. And sometimes they look at me and say, well, I'm not going to do that just because you want it. And I say to them, I'm not asking you because I want it. I'm asking you because I have the voice to speak for other people who need it and can't speak for themselves. Maybe they're in a conservative environment where they can't speak freely or maybe they can't speak up or don't want to speak up publicly because of their own experience. You know, for example, we have 
an issue in my town where some of our polling places are in Catholic churches, and we have a lot of victims of clergy abuse in Rhode Island. And those people are being asked to go into a polling place that smells like a church, looks like a church, has religious symbols in it, just to vote. So when I ask politicians to change that, it's not because I want it. It's because other people want it. And they don't want to speak up because they don't want to talk about their experience. So when I speak up and ask for something like that, it's not because I want it. It's because I see the greater good in having it changed. Yeah. It's kind of like you and I who are in our 50s advocating for abortion and reproductive rights, that it's not for us anymore, (laughs) but it's because we see the greater good in it. Right. And having lived in a system where abortion was not readily available and seen how devastating that is for people, our experience really forces us to speak up about it so that young people don't have to go through that anymore. Right. You know, we're still in the pandemic and I know people have been binge watching shows and reading more. Have you watched or read anything recently that has inspired you? You know, I just started watching a show on Netflix called Love on the Spectrum. It's a reality TV show about people with autism who are trying to find their life partner and overcoming the social and emotional hurdles to doing that. And it's just so incredibly brave of these people to put their search for love on the air, first of all. There are so many moments in the show that are just painfully awkward, but in a relatable way. It brings out all of us right back to our seventh grade dances, talking to members of the opposite sex or trying to negotiate those kinds of relationships early on. And you just feel how painfully awkward it is for them and how brave it is for them to put that out in public. It's really inspirational that they are doing that and, you know, doing it to help others to navigate that because it is group of people that has a lot of trouble connecting with other people. And to put that struggle right out in the public was just incredibly inspiring. Really amazing. I've heard good things about that show. So think back to yourself at age 21. What would you say to her now? Oh, goodness. Maybe you don't have to work quite so hard. Two jobs are enough. Drop the third one. It's all going to work out in the end. Yeah. I'll bet your 21-year-old self would have appreciated hearing that. (laughs) Because you're working so hard. There were long stretches of not knowing that it would be, that that would be reassuring, I think, to hear at that age that it had a happy ending. Totally. So my final question is, is there a story of grit and resilience or finding one's fertile ground that has been an inspiration for you in your life? Oh, goodness. There are just so many, even in my own family. I have cousins who grew up similarly impoverished, who had even more challenges than I did. Some had learning disabilities and hardships, injuries, things that they had to overcome. And I recently got to see all of my cousins that I hadn't seen in years. And it's amazing how successful each and every one of them is. They've all developed really unique ways of expressing themselves and being themselves and doing amazing amazing things from having absolutely no resources whatsoever. So I feel like I found a great path, but so did they. Mm -hmm. And they didn't do it through formal education. They went entirely in different directions, some through social connections, some through art. There are just so many different ways that you can branch out and grow. And it's inspiring to me to see so many different success stories from where we all started. That's great. 
Is there anything else you'd like to tell our listeners? I just say, don't be afraid to branch out. You don't have to only grow in one direction and branch up, but also branch out and try different things, things you're not good at, things that are really scary at first, because everything is the first few times. So don't just do things that you're good at and the things that you're well-educated at, but really do try other things. And when life throws you a curveball, just hit it. See what happens. (laughs) Uh, Well, congratulations on your success in reinventing yourself. I wish you all the best of luck. Thank you so much for chatting with me. Yeah, it's been great to meet you. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. I found Melissa's resilience and reinvention stories to be fascinating. Melissa is currently featured in Model Billboard magazine and has been on the runway in Rhode Island, New England, and New York Fashion Weeks. To see her portfolio or hire her for modeling, check out her Instagram page. I'll drop the link in the show notes. You can see photos and learn more about Melissa at www.fertilegroundcommunications.com. Look for the Finding Fertile Ground podcast tab. Listeners, I'd love to hear from you. Let me know what you think about this episode by dropping me a line at marie at fertilegroundcommunications.com. Thanks for listening to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast. If you liked today's episode, please subscribe and leave a review.